Welcome to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. It's time to make mental health a normal conversation with your host, Shane Kelton. All right, welcome to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the podcast. Uh, It's been a while since recording. First time back, hopefully no technical issues. Um, Last time we had some technical issues with Wi-Fi because we just went into lockdown, but hopefully that's changed now. So welcome my guest, uh, the wonderful Jamie Munro. Hello. Hello. Um, last time we had a conversation, your last name was different as well. So yes, it was. I nearly, I, I nearly said that, but I was like, no, no it's, it's Munro now. Um, yep, snuck right in there before COVID hit, so we we're very lucky. Yeah. That is like that is very lucky. But yeah. a lot of people waiting on weddings, including myself. So, um, but that's that's what's happening. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. as we're talking about it, and we're going to talk about your story and what you do now and all of that. And but how are you going getting through COVID? Um, I think like everybody, it's been a very um, foreign and interesting journey. Um, I think. Everybody is coping with it differently. Um, I'm certainly coping with it a lot differently than what I expected. So I probably didn't prepare myself as well as I should have, um, as well as I could have, um, just with that constant state of anxiety. So I've found um, in being very in touch with and in tune with um, myself as a person now and all the work that I've done, I'm becoming a lot more sensitive to um, messages in the world and just anxieties of other people and I was already very much an empathic person but um, I think now more than ever I'm very influenced by that. Um, So very, um, I was very, very anxious and very highly strung. There was definitely a few more panic attacks than I was used to um, in all of yeah. the work that I've done over the past yeah. however many years. So, yeah, the past few months have been testing times, um, but I've just been just doing what I always do and consistently do and, and practice what I preach, and that's just continuing with my um mind and behavioral health and wellness plan um and working hard on on bettering myself every day so that i can help others that just that provides me with um so much positivity and focusing on the gratitude of things but also um i think more to the point i think i was overdoing that like overdoing that um that gratitude and to the point where I was pushing the negative feelings away. So I wasn't necessarily just being grateful for what I had. I was going, okay, well, I can't be sad or I can't feel anxious because I've got all of these positive things. I'm one of the lucky ones that I'm still working because I'm still in, I'm in construction. So I'm very lucky and very grateful to be doing so. But I was essentially telling myself that I couldn't be anxious, that I couldn't be sad about what was going on with the world um, because I had it so, so good. Um, and I fell into that trap again. It's the trap that I fell in, into when I was younger and yeah. it's the trap that I've, you know, the cycle that I've been trying to get out of my whole life. So that was really interesting on reflection and, and um, looking back and thinking about and trying to process what was happening um, in my own mind, let alone what was going on with the world. So I still kind of took a step back just in the past probably month or two um, and have really reevaluated. Um the situation of the world and how I fit into that and gone, okay, well, if I, if I do feel anxious or if I do feel really depressed about what's going on, I need to honour that and then do the work to make sure that I continue to take a step up the next time and, and focus on focus on positives but focus on working on bettering myself. How am I going to cope better next time? How am I going to process that emotion more efficiently next time how am I going to let that thing go whatever it is that thought that feeling um, that worry better next time so um, I just continue to do that over and over every single day it's a work in progress Um, last week with stage four hit me again so again I just (laughs) took a step back um, 
yeah, and and reevaluated. I was very very anxious, specifically last week because the stage four restrictions were about to affect construction. There was so many unknowns, um, like with the first day, first rollout of the first stage of restrictions. So um, I was finding myself too anxious to even leave the house. So I took a day. I just sat with the feelings, processed it where I could, but then was just mindful in painting, um, you know, doing a few art projects here and there, um, reading books, even just watching movies, that kind of thing, just really honouring how I was feeling um, and then picking up the next day and going, okay, that's how I felt yesterday, still feeling a little bit off today, but I'm going to do the work so that tomorrow um, I don't feel that way. Um, so, yeah little bit on edge still but at the moment but I think I'm um I'm getting there it's just one day at a time yeah it's the un it's the unknown of everything we don't know we for the first time probably in our lives I mean we're around the 30 mark so it's mm-hmm. the first time in our lives where we feel we almost need control of the world where but we have no control over what's happening we just Not don't Eric. and that's that's the that's the fear, the anxiety is what will it look like, and we don't. And I even read an article today, and I try not to read articles, but there was an article about wearing face masks for years, and I was like, holy, threw me back. But I was like, hang on a minute. At one stage or another, people in society didn't wear shoes. They weren't a thing. So people grew to, and obviously that helped them, but this helps in a different way. So mm. we were so scared of things that, we, we don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah. but listening to you, like there's some great advice. Um, I took, took it on board. I was listening really intently because I was like, ah, oh, yeah, sweet. <laughs> and I was, I was thinking, it was one thing I was thinking, and this is, I guess, a management strategy and tip that I've picked up is changing the word cope to manage. And mm. I think I would say you're managing this time better than what maybe you would have in the past. So in the yeah. past you might have just coped, whereas this yeah. time you've just you've managed the feelings rather than going to sabotage type scenarios. That be a better way, of, not a better way, but a, a way a more productive way of putting it. Yeah, I actually really like that um, co- like manage versus cope because if I if I take the actual words themselves, if I think about coping, well, you're reactive. Coping is very much a reactive strategy. Whatever gets thrown at me, I'll just deal with it as it comes up, whereas if you're managing something, you're proactive in your nature. So you're putting things in place to go, okay, well, if this happens, then I can do this or I'm going to do this because I know that this will support me in how I'm feeling, um, how I could be feeling tomorrow. So, yeah, I definitely think that um, manage is is a more appropriate word, absolutely. Definitely a more fitting word. Yeah, and I think so the way I see it is when people think of cope or coping mechanisms or strategies, they always look at the negative type Mm -hmm. stuff that happens, Um, whereas I think when you say managing, you tend to fall in the other direction where I, yep, I'll sit in my, I'll sit with my thoughts. I'll look after myself rather than getting a bottle of wine, which is okay at times as well. I'm not mm. flushing wine down the toilet or anything no. else, but well, I don't, I don't personally drink it, but um, it's, yeah, I think the way you're describing is managing. And I think if people out there might listen to that, that what they can, because they might look at themselves and be judging themselves really harshly at the moment because yeah. they are struggling, but it, but are they, I think the question they ask themselves, am I managing or am I coping? And if you're managing, you're probably doing a lot better than you think you are. Whereas yeah. if you are coping, then maybe you can go, all right, well, what can I do to manage this better myself? Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's like, that's really fitting because that's, that's exactly the way that I look at my mental health. I'm not coping anymore. I'm managing it. And, it, and it's a daily thing and it's a, it's a lifetime thing that I'll be managing it um, probably for the rest of my life, which I've accepted and that's okay, but I'm not going to be coping anymore. Um, yeah. I'm not going to be just reacting to the thoughts that come into my head or the, the way that I wake up feeling. If I wake up feeling crappy, then I'm going to manage myself and figure out, okay, well, is it a day that I need to spend in bed resting or is it a day that I need to get up and get productive and feel like I've accomplished some tasks that day. So, yeah. yeah and, both, and both of those days are perfectly fine. 
Exactly right. Yes, but it's <laughs> yeah, about management that of figuring out that feeling. Okay, which one am I feeling that day? And and honouring that. Um, and to your point, managing accordingly. Yeah, and I, it's a really good point because they're both fine to do. But mm. if you're staying in bed for weeks on end, then it's you're coping. Where mm. if you go into that, I'm going to work through all of this and work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, you're going into the same thing. And people don't realise, I think, people working uh, are just, they're managing life. Well, it's, no, they're avoiding and, and they're coping yeah. with it. So yeah. um, really powerful messages to start off with. So, yeah. geez, I reckon you can talk about COVID for ages, but we won't because people have had enough of it. <laughs> Probably sick of hearing about it. They just want to think about something else. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about other things. Let's talk about, well, we met, we don't even know the year because we both, uh, but it, I would say 2016. Yeah, about then, I think. We, I think myself and Todd reached out to you to speak at a Beyond Blue event. Yes. And was that was that the first time you ever shared your story publicly? It was. You guys were the reasons um, that I am in this. Essentially, you were the that um, that point of change, that that important, all important point of change that gave me a taste for speaking out and speaking up so yeah, yeah that was that was a really powerful um and beautiful thing and a really great opportunity and i'll forever forever be grateful for that um there was obviously other people that um catapulted that into my life that it is today but um yeah you you and todd um were definitely the uh the foundations of that for sure changed changed the course of my um of my life essentially so yeah well I, but you said you did say yes so to, i think you should take the credit more than us um <laughs> we well i mean we were honored and um i mean we don't have any footage so people can't go back and watch it but mm-hmm. it was it was a beautiful night with um i don't remember what you said on the night which i'm probably grateful for because i can now ask you about some parts of your life <laughs> and be like oh how amazing are you um but i but i do remember being emotional um on the night mm-hmm. and so the overwhelming feeling was just proudness of the fact that you stood up there in front of family and friends and just opened yourself up for basically what i mean in your anxiety ridden mind could have been the scariest thing um you could have gone to like oh i know my friends and family will judge and all of that but what was it like before we go into the what led to that telling your story and in your Mm. life itself what was that experience like when you opened up on such i guess a spectrum like that and we're not saying everyone should do that because people shouldn't always do that that's not Mm. the case um what was it like for you though um it was a relief it was like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I mean, like you said, it was very emotional. And when you were saying it, I have this image in my head and I actually came across the photo on Facebook in my memories oh, probably a couple of weeks ago actually um, of me doing my speech mid-tears um, and you up there next to me with your hand on my back. And it's a really, yeah. really beautiful and powerful image. It's one of my favourite images from that night. Um, just that it, it clearly shows one the emotion, but two the love and support um, that was felt through everybody. But I felt I was just so overwhelmed in such a beautiful and positive way with how um, how supported and loved I felt. So it was it was an incredibly um, powerful thing figuring out. Um, the reactions that I could get and and the way that I could move people in through telling my experience that I and my story that I never thought was important. I I really didn't think it was important. Um, And it wasn't until I had started speaking out about it a few years earlier on social media that I kind of realised that there there is a space for that and that I can make an impact and I can actually help people with this. So I jumped at the opportunity when you and Todd asked me. I was so grateful and so honoured. Um, and to be able to tell that story and that night, I'll never, ever forget that night because I was just so 
um, so overwhelmed with such love and such relief. Like I said, I'd never, ever, um, whilst I'd spoken out about my um, mental illness before and my struggles before, I'd never acknowledged or had a conversation with my family about what had happened um, or about the lead up to the events um, that caused me to nearly end my life. So it was a really beautiful thing um, to be able to have that opportunity to speak without any sort of interruption but also speak for to to those specific people that I affected so greatly and that affected me so greatly um with people just listening yeah it's it's a really really powerful thing to to speak and be heard um because it's all well and good we we often and it's something that I say all the time and it's something that I talk about with a few people that we often just speak to reply and we have a conversation just to reply. We don't We don't have a conversation to listen. And to, so to have all of those people sitting there and just listening to what I was saying and taking in every word and seeing the effects that my words had on them and I could visibly see it on their faces mm. was phenomenal. But to be able to express what I wanted to to my family, in particular um, my immediate family, and my auntie who looked after me after I got out of the hospital, um, that that felt like such a relief to me because I'd never really been able to acknowledge or, or find the words to um, show how much I appreciated that. So, yeah, love and relief. I think that's how I felt. That's fantastic. They're two amazing things by just being vulnerable and opening up and it doesn't need to be in front of a couple of hundred people like no. it was. <laughs> Um, it can be just in a room with your family and friends. Um, yeah. So if people are listening, you don't need to shout it from the rooftops. You can um, open up to your family and friends about your struggles and do that. And it's, it is extremely hard to do still. Um, in saying that, though, I think it's actually less scary to speak in front of a couple of hundred people that, you know, you, you know or you've you've hung around or, um, or know people that you know. It's less scary to do that yeah. than it is to sit in front of the people that are closest to you and the people that you love the most and be, be vulnerable and sit with that. That's a really right. – I, I think that is more brave. I will commend absolutely anybody that can sit there and own their feelings and, and, and be honest and raw to the people closest to them because I think that's the hardest thing to do. Yeah, and I bet I know myself it's still very hard to do at times with the people because you don't want to upset the people around you. It's instinct. We, as soon as we, we, we care so much about them, yeah, we don't want to upset them. Yeah. So we just trap it in. So we, I don't know if you probably still do it from time to time, but I mm. definitely do it. So I can definitely back that comment up. Now, you spoke about hospital, you spoke about your family. What What is your story in essence? Where did that start? Who is Jamie Munro, past Wolf? Where did yeah. you start family life? Let's, let's delve deep into it. Yeah, sure. Let's start at the beginning. So um, to give a little bit of um, context, um, I was brought up in a very loving and supportive household. So uh, my parents are still together. They've been married for over 30 years, I think now, like they're, they're still very much in love. I was literally just talking to my dad today and he was saying um, that he's just bought my mum flowers today just because he loves her. Like he's just, they're really, really beautiful and they're really, really supportive in um, my life now. But even, you know, as I was growing up, whatever sport I wanted to play, um, whatever um, avenue I wanted to pursue, they were there backing me 100% with me and my sisters. Um, I've got two younger sisters, um, one who's 18 months younger than me, Katie, and um, Danny, who's five years younger than me. So um, growing up, we all fought like cat and dog as siblings do um but as we've gotten older we have a really beautiful and profound um love and understanding for each other so um i'm very very grateful for the right relationship that i have with my sisters and my parents um especially now um but yeah growing up we were always a really tight-knit family um i went to a really good school um 
I was very good in school. So I went through 13 years of schooling and I did not get one detention, not one. I, that's, um, that's, yeah, that's too good. I was that's a grade A nerd, full on <laughs> teacher's pet, um, but it was also to my detriment, unfortunately. So behind the scenes um, I learnt quickly at a young age um, to put all of my self-worth um, and everything I was as a, as a human being into other people. Um, and I learned quickly that if I did good, essentially, um, that I would be rewarded for that and I would be told that I was doing a good job and that therefore I was worth something and I was I was valuable to the world. So um, I... Uh, in that, learned to push my emotions down. Any negative emotion that I was feeling, um, anger, upset, um, frustration, whatever it was, for the most part, I would push it down. Um, and this is something that I say no matter where I speak or who I speak to, when I tell my story, the, the one thing um, that I remember, and I will always remember it, to this day I was 12 or 13 years old I was so young um and I remember physically pushing my emotions down after a fight with my sister it was over something ridiculous I'm sure but I was so mad and so frustrated that mum didn't see it my way um and that she had taken my sister's side but I couldn't I couldn't fight back I couldn't I, I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do because I just told myself that no if you fight back you're a bad girl essentially so I had this good girl complex um yeah. so I, I physically remember I was standing in our living room in this um in this small house the small rental that we were living in while a house was being built and I physically remember pushing that emotion down I can still feel it to this day <laughs> and um I remember thinking how scared I was that I was going to explode. And at the time I thought physically, um, I see down the line was very much emotionally um, and somewhat physically, I suppose. So, yeah, yeah. yeah so that was um, that was then and, and I um, dealt with, um, and it's not something I often share or I don't think I've actually ever really shared on this kind of platform. Um, I was bullied quite badly through school um, through this particular group of people um, and I was publicly publicly humiliated in the front in in front of my classroom um, and that was something that really really affected me um, and that actually caused me to write my first suicide note at the age of 13. Um, I was self-harming um, so no one could see it, but I was still doing it. Um, and then I kind of just, I, I stopped because I was ashamed. Um, I was embarrassed and I knew that if someone found my diary entries and I knew if someone found um, scars on me that they would ask me how I was feeling they would ask me what was going on. So I knew that I had to stop for no other reason other than not that I knew it was wrong, only that I didn't want to share. I, I knew that they would be um, clear signs and I didn't want to share how I was feeling because I was so embarrassed to be feeling any negative emotion because I was the good girl. So you were the good Exactly right. So I pushed that down as far down in the depths of my mind as I possibly could um, and I used sport as a way of coping. Um, so I played basketball, I played netball, um, I did karate for a time, I was dancing, um, I did absolutely every sport that I could possibly think of um, and I threw myself into my schoolwork. So I was straight A's, like I said before, never got a detention, absolute teacher's pet. Um, I thrived on pushing all of my energy into getting told I was good enough so that I didn't have to think about the negative emotions that were clearly brewing inside of me. Um, so I basically did that for the whole of um, the rest of primary school and the, the whole of high school. Um, I uh, 
any time that I would have a fight with a friend or um, deal with a breakup or anything like that, I would just push it down and throw myself back in to sport and to um, my schoolwork. So that was really easy to me. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't the smartest kid in the room. Like I didn't, I didn't, things didn't click straight away. Um, but I used that to my advantage because it meant that I could do three, four, sometimes five hours of homework every single night, which meant one, that I was focusing on something else. Yeah, and two, and probably more importantly, <laughs> I didn't have to spend time with my family because they would have noticed that something was going on. Yeah. So classic avoidance um, for, for both both of those points. I just I avoided physical interactions as much as I could um, and I avoided being in my own head and that was through schoolwork. So um, I did that for my whole schooling career um, and then I started getting quite competitive in netball um, and that was when I started to realise that I could let some aggression out um, through netball. Yep. So through my um, netball career, I suppose you could call it, um, I became quite an aggressive player. Um, I, yeah, threw myself into um, other players. I yelled at umpires. Um, I, you know, nearly got our team kicked off. It was obviously it wasn't just me, but <laughs> there was a few other people. But, um, yeah, I, I nearly, um, I nearly actually quite injured a girl quite badly. Um, I nearly knocked her out. So it How was, old were you then? 17. We, yeah, about did you 17. walk away feeling guilty and ashamed? No, I, woke, I walked no. away feeling really relieved, to be honest, because uh, I'd let something out. I know, I was, yeah. And because I, I almost took on this other persona when I was playing netball, I, I could be the aggressive player because I was a defender. So I could just be yeah. that aggressive defender and not I would I couldn't get in trouble because I was just an aggressive defender and because I was playing country netball, a lot of girls were aggressive defenders. So I, I didn't I could almost hide behind that mask and that facade and go, okay, this is how I'm gonna let some aggression out. Um, so I did that and I'm, um, I'm sitting here wondering how many netballers are listening going, Oh, that's why I've been doing that for ten years and just like go, oh wow. Yeah. Wow, all right, and this light bulb's <laughs> just dropping because you you do see a lot of aggressive uh, defenders. So yeah. I wonder how many others are out there in the similar boat. Yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting. So if anyone is an aggressive defender, please reach out and we can talk. But yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, definitely, um, definitely something I used um, to my advantage um, until I got called out for it. But that was not until um, probably over a year later that I got called out for it and then the shame and the guilt came along with that and then I was the good girl again. Um, yeah. But in between that I went through year 12 and that was kind of where um, – the cracks started to show. So up until then, and my mum will still attest to this, that I was a, a good kid and I never got in trouble. I was never a hassle or anything like that. Um, and she never noticed a difference or a shift in my behaviour or my moods until year 12. Um, so as you can imagine, putting all of that pressure on myself right through my schooling career um, made for a lot of pressure when I got to year 12. Um, and I, I'm sure you can attest to the shame, but when, when like we were back in high school, and I, I, I do hope to think that it's different now, I don't know, but um, everything rode on getting a good and to score yeah. everything wrote on getting a high grades in year 12 that was the be all and end all your parents told you that the school told you that the unis told you that and I wanted to be a teacher at the time um, I was desperate to get into this specific course um, and the enter I think they call it an ATAR score now um, the enter was a, a set um, a set score but then I had a, a set score that I wanted to get and that I had in my head I want to get over this score. Um, and so I put all of this pressure on myself right through right through year 12 and then took on extra responsibilities as a good girl would. I was um, our one of our sport captains. Um, I threw myself into extracurricular activities. Um, I, 
you know, threw myself into doing um, through school like debate team and um, that kind of thing. I read in the library and then I tried to learn chess and then I, um, there was just so many other things that I did. I was on the netball team. I was playing to school sport. I, there was, I was always trying to keep busy. I never, I never let myself just relax and be there was always the next thing to do cross country netball study uh, whatever it was I was there for it so and and it's only now that I look back and reflect and go all I wanted to do was keep busy that's all I was doing I was to to what we were talking about before I was just coping I was just trying to cope that's all I was doing you actually used the word cope when you said play sport and it's Mm -hmm. such a when you're using sport to cope and you don't, well, A, you're probably not going to get the best out of yourself in some way, but B, you're not going to enjoy it. And you look back and you'll go, wow, I actually wasn't enjoying it. I was just using it. It was, it's a codependent relationship, which is so unhealthy. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to listen. And when you said the word cope, it just went bang. I was like, and then you're right. That's exactly what you're doing throughout. And I think it was, Oh, I spoke to a and I'll, this girl's anonymous. She's she's going to record or record on the podcast and stay anonymous, um, which I think is going to be really powerful. But yeah, she's very similar to you in terms of she was a grade at everything, mm-hmm. and then but it hit her about thirty when things yeah, started okay. to unravel. So yeah, what what did your unraveling look like post? I mean, year twelve of high school. Like when did people yeah. start to recognise it? When did you because you hit it so well for so long, you couldn't have kept hiding it. Yeah, no, I <laughs> it started to unravel with um, overreactions to simple things. So, like, my mum would ask me to un- unpack the dishwasher, for example, and I I would fly off the handle um, and tell everybody that I hated them and have complete meltdown. Um, or my sister. Um, and I don't physically remember this specific time, but I'm, I'm fairly sure I was in year 12 that I was looking after my sister because my parents were away or something and um, she had spilt Milo on the carpet and she, she was so anxious and worried that I was going to fly off the handle and when I didn't, she was even more scared. I was very calm apparently. Um, and I said, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. I'll do it. The glass was everywhere and the Milo was everywhere and the milk was everywhere and it was all over this this rug. And um, she said I was midway cleaning it up and it was like a switch flicked in my head and all of a sudden I got up and I just lost it at her and I just went absolutely crazy. Um, I yelled at her, screamed at her, called her all of the names under the sun that I could possibly think of um, and then just stormed off. So they were the kind of things that I was doing quite regularly. Essentially my whole family was walking on eggshells around me. Um, I would just, yeah, overreact to the simplest of things and it was just because I was trying to let let the let my lid off like I I was up here my my mental health or my mental illness and my emotions and and trapped feelings were right up to the top of my head and they were just ready to explode and I just couldn't keep them in I couldn't keep them in but I didn't know how to let them out yeah that was the most important thing I, I did not know how to let them out because I'd never learnt and that wasn't too anyone's fault it was just something that I had never learned was how to cope with negative emotions because I'd never had any growing up not outwardly yeah. so no. and yeah I love that he said it's, it's it isn't anyone's fault but it is now looking at it and hearing stories like yours this is where we can create that change and that big shift to teach the next generations that it's okay to feel sad it's okay to feel shit it's okay to feel unhappy angry uh, but there's a way and a process that is much healthier than doing what and I can attest this what we both did is just push 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 and then all of a sudden as volcanoes do they erupt in time and then it goes back down and then thousands of years later for, for us it's 
I guess, well, for me and maybe for you, it starts off one every couple of months and then it's like you start flipping your handle every couple of days yeah. um, because you just, it just, you don't know what to do anymore. Yeah, exactly right. And that was when I had started to unravel. So um, then through, so I got to the end of year 12, I, I made it through, um, that was really, really tough. I, I really didn't think that I was going to make it, but um, I did. Um, did you did you get the score you wanted? No. So that was okay. what I was going to say next. I did not get the score that I wanted. I got three points lower than what I wanted to get. I was like 2.7 points lower. Like it was ridiculous. But I cried for about a day. I was yep. absolutely devastated that I did not get the score that I wanted and I thought I basically I thought my life was over I I'm fairly sure I had said that to my mum I'm not going to get into the course that I wanted to get into I'm going to have to figure out a new career path my life is over um and that wasn't the case at all I (laughs) got straight into the course that I wanted to get into um because I had a high enough score to get into it. It was just that I didn't meet my own requirements that I had set yeah. on myself. Um, and not only that, I did the four years of uni, which I'll go into in a minute, but I'm not even in that career anymore. I actually never went into that career at all. Uh, I was going to so, ask, um, that was going to be my next question. Do you even use that ATAR anymore? <laughs> to no, anymore? Because I, I, know what, I know what you do and I know you don't. And it's, I... I didn't get an enter score because I did do an English to SAC. But I remember that the kids at school that tried really, really hard and that didn't get the score they wanted. And I was the kid meltdowning in year 12. I watched them when they were going, trying to get into uni, watching them, their mental health just disintegrate because they'd put everything on this one score. Yeah. I was like, like I didn't even get a score. <laughs> so, yeah. like, yeah. it's, we, and we do it to our, I mean, it's, civilization and the social norm to be better faster better scores all of this and but sometimes we need to come back and say it's just okay you didn't get this high score and as Mm. you just pointed out you didn't even use it anyway no I didn't use it anyway and that was the I think like looking back now it's the most frustrating thing not I mean I I definitely could have had better um, management systems in my schooling, but I didn't learn them. But I think the most disappointing thing for me is that my school put that kind of pressure on me. So, you know, whilst it wasn't to the extent that I put the pressure on myself, the pressure was there. It came from the school originally. um, And and to be able to then go from, like you said just just now, working so hard for, for six years or whatever it is to that one score at the end of the day and then just nothing. You'd, when you get to uni, there's no support system. There's no one even checking whether you're doing your work or attending class, let alone you know they don't they don't care if you're there or not. They don't care what score you get. Um, so to go from all of that pressure to nothing and figuring out within the first assignment that I did that I could try basically to next to nothing compared to what I was doing before. I, d- I didn't try. I stopped trying and, and get a good mark, you know, get a, a pass mark or even like a, even there was some assignments that I tried in or that I didn't really try and that I got, you know, distinctions and, and high distinctions, which for those of you who don't know university rankings is essentially between 70 and 90%. Like it's a really good mark. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I could, I could, you know, do that within uh, smashing out an assignment in a couple of hours. So why would I spend, you know, six, seven, eight hours on one thing when I could spend two hours and get the same result and have half the stress. But the thing for me was um, I didn't have any management in place or any any, um, positive mental health strategies in place. So when the walls came down and I started to relax a little bit, all of that mental health, um, 
imbalance essentially all of those struggles and all of those negative thoughts and all of those unprocessed emotions they knocked me straight in the head like a bloody bus yeah out of nowhere almost pardon was it well like obviously there were signs but it was very out of nowhere in terms of how quickly the bus just it was it was around the corner for a while but it 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 sped up around that corner yeah, it really did. That the the transition from U twelve to uni that was the corner, um, and then the downhill spiral began. So uni was a a really really tough slog for me. Um, my course was great, but one I had no support system whatsoever. Couldn't rely on my uni at all. Um, I didn't even know how to get to some of my classrooms, let alone where. Um, or how to access any mental health um, yeah, yeah. mental health supports. So that was a really big struggle for me. Um, I, in my third year of uni, um, oh, for, sorry, fourth year of uni, first semester, I had a um, I had this one class, and I so a semester is like thirteen weeks long. So I had 13 classes and out of 13 classes, I attended one. Well, wow. so I attended one class out of 13 and I submitted an assignment that was due and I did, um, I did education. So I did two degrees. I did a secondary education degree and then I did a bachelor of um, sport and outdoor recreation. So essentially I am a qualified secondary sports teacher, a sport and outdoor ed teacher. Um, and I did this assignment, I handed it in, and when we got our grades, when everyone was due to get their grades back, I didn't get a grade, um, I just got a fail. And I didn't understand or it said fail incomplete or something like that. And so I emailed my tutor and I said, I don't understand why you haven't graded my paper. Have you lost it? Has something happened? And she said, no, I deleted it because you're not in my class. Oh, and I was like, well, I am. I know I'm in your class. And she said, well, no, you're not. You've never attended a lesson. Um, so that was a really big, like, wow moment um, for me. And I, it was at a really, really dark time in my life. Um, it was around the time where I had made an attempt on my life, which I'll get to the lead up of that in a moment. But um, I... I the, the, the uni didn't reach out to me. So I had to muster up all of the courage that I had to then go and reach out to the uni. And the only reason that I did that was because I knew the good girl complex coming back in that I would have failed the unit, yep. which means that I would have had to extend my degree six months for one class. Um, and I didn't want to do that because I knew I would get in trouble or I thought I would get in trouble um, yeah, yeah. from my family and that kind of thing. And I was like 21 years old, so I shouldn't be worrying about, you know, getting in trouble from your parents at 21, but that's what I was worried about. I was so worried about displeasing my family because my self-worth was, oh, well, if I'm in trouble, then I'm not a good person. I'm not worthy and uh, I'm not valuable to society no. so, or to my family. Yeah. You have to be perfect. Exactly right because I was the good girl. I was the perfect child. Um, so, yeah, that that was essentially that, that story um, sums up my uni degree. Like that was a real, there was no accountability whatsoever and there was no support um, from the university. So I fell into a big black hole. Um, and I really, really struggled to get my way out of it. Um, so yeah, so through uni, I was still playing netball, um, yep. which was the well, of course, only. Of course, you couldn't give up life. No, exactly you right. To, you needed to do things. <laughs> exactly right. And in my, I think it was in my first year of uni um, that I basically was um, told by a boyfriend at the time, I think it was first or second year of uni, um, that, that I needed help. And I, I knew that. I already knew that I needed help, but I didn't want to admit it because I didn't want to admit that something was wrong with me. Because if I said that I needed help, it meant that I needed to be fixed and it meant that I was broken. Yeah. So well, that, that was the way you saw it. 
Exactly right. Exactly right. That was my thought process behind it. So I, um, he supported me through that in getting help. Um, and I finally got diagnosed with anxiety and with depression. And I was given that magic little pill. And I thought, okay, cool, I'm fixed now, which is <laughs> obviously not the case. Um, oh, I love that. I, lo- I love that because I did that as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How, how, how funny are we? Yeah. And I, I do think it's it's not only us that we think we just want a quick fix and we just want it all to be better and we want it all to go away, but I also think it has a lot to do with society as a whole, the expectation that, um, well, if you're unwell, then you need to fix it something's wrong, you're broken, have some medication or put a bandage on it or whatever you want to do and fix it so we can deal with you as a functioning member of society so we can accept you for normal, in inverted commas. Yeah. Um, I I also extend it to the fact that you can get nearly anything straight away to the point where you go on your phone and you order food and we are so used to getting everything straight away and the social yeah. one you probably will attest to this as well i'm sure i may mention it but when you look at social media or media you see a before and an after you do not see 12 months three years six years 20 years of hard work that goes into it so you think instinctively it's not not something we choose to do we we just instinctively go i want that mm-hmm. i just i'm going to get it where it's like it's not the case no. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. That that before, that instant before and after. Yeah. And that instant, the instant gratification that we get, and the instant access. Everything's instant. Yeah. Everything's so immediate, so quick, and we're on to the next thing. Look, look and I, so, I think about like restaurants who are at the moment because I'm doing obviously doing Uber Eats, and I went into a restaurant one yeah. night to pick up some Indian food, and they were swamped. The Uber Eats orders were just coming out, just because no one was allowed in there and three or four people called up and said we don't want it it's been too long and I was like people are just so reactive to time they want it now and when it's not there now and it comes back to what I'm working with um, with my mentor is one of our rational beliefs we must get what we want and when we want it but that's not reality um that's not how it works so it's yeah that's and I think that's a topic for another day to be honest as well (laughs) Yeah, it's a whole nother kettle of fish, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So Yeah, back to to your story now. (laughs) Yeah. I've lost track a little. You were just, you finished uni, but at the doctor, got a pill, instant quick fix. So, yeah, this was, yeah, so instant quick fix. This was through first year of uni um, and second year of uni that I, yeah, essentially thought I was better. Um, I went through this really um, unhealthy way of coping, and I'm definitely going to highlight that word, way of coping, um, and it was very much a, a little cycle. So, I would be positive and good and and well. I was um, taking my medication. I was exercising. I was seeing a, a counsellor um, and then I would crash again and then something would set me off and I would go downhill. Um, and that, that was just this really emotional, traumatic cycle that I went through um, and the the psychologists that I was um, that I was seeing was not helpful. Yeah. So the one that I see now, I've seen for gosh, probably about ten years now, nearly ten years. Um, and but I went through about six before I met her, and I had give I went through six and I had given up hope before I met her. So I went through. The standard issue, um, tell me about your childhood um, and how do you feel about that kind of psychologist. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> she wasn't working for me. Um, it was very impersonal and it was clear she didn't 
want to or care to understand my story and my experience, which is all you want from from someone like that. If you are trying to get that mental health support, you want someone who you feel like understands you and who really listens to you. Um, and that that was certainly the case for me. So val- val- validations of the way you're feeling in your experiences. Where, where, yeah, exactly right. It doesn't then, matter if they're right or wrong or whatever picture you want to put in me. It's just validation because the way we feel is the way we feel. We can't, yeah. you can't just walk in and just go, I'm changing the way I feel like that. Unfortunately, if that worked, we'd have a perfect society. So Exactly. Exactly right. It would be like if a um, white little pill yeah. worked, a magic pill worked, it would be fine as a society, but that's not the case because everybody's different. So for me, um, I, I just I did not cope with that. I felt so neglected and, and so um, unimportant. That, that was the biggest thing. I, I'd never really, I'd, I'd never made my, myself feel important, but to, to be able to, for someone who had put their entire self-worth into other people's validation, um, sorry, my own validation to other people, um, to then have a psychologist that was cold and, and robotic almost was really unhelpful yeah. and it wasn't, I, I knew that it wasn't right for me so I gave up um, and then and the, the, my family. That could have worked for someone else and I think it's. It could have, absolutely. and Really important we mention that. Yeah, and, you know, it's different for everybody. Everybody's mental wellness plan is so different and what works for me isn't necessarily going to work for you, Shane. And, you know, Matt, who I work with at Mindful Oz, he isn't interested in psychologists or psychiatrists. They don't work for him. That's fine because he still manages his bipolar without medication and he is as fit and as healthy and as well as he has ever been. And that is his own doing because he grabbed that wellness back, p- took it in his own hands and he created his own blueprint and he created this own well- his own wellness plan that he sticks to every single day without fail yeah. and he is well. Yeah. He's not coping. He is managing his mental illness and he is well every day. And that's without the help of psychologists and psychiatrists. But for me, on the other hand, whilst I didn't have a positive experience with the first six, I did stick it out and now I have an amazing support in my current psychologist. So I'm very, very grateful that I do have that. Um, But I think in this I want to make it very, very clear if you meet a psychologist or a counsellor or a psychiatrist or any sort of mental wellness or mental health doctor um, or, or practitioner, if you don't get along with them or if you don't feel comfortable, don't force it, but also don't give up. There is someone out there for you yeah. and if there's not, there's something else. Can I, can I add? I'd like to add of course. don't blame them as well. Because it actually isn't them. And that's that's the whole no. purpose of it. The purpose it is for Jamie to go in and get help. So it's not the counsellor's fault. It's Jamie's responsibility to go to the next one to make sure that's done. Another little word change. I'll, and it's also I'll, important. Yeah, I like that. It's also important to know, I think, it's, it's no one's mm. fault. It's not my fault. It's, it's a compatibility thing. Just like, you know, my husband loves cheese and I'm not a massive fan. Like it, you're not going to work with everybody. People are so individual and so different from one another that we're not all going to get along yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. We're not all going to mesh. And with something so so vulnerable and so delicate as your mental health, it's really important that you feel safe and you feel um, comfortable to be that vulnerable. So like you said, you know, it's not that counsellor's fault because they might be really good for the next Mm. person Um, or they might have been really great for the person before. But for me, that's those specific ones, they they weren't comfortable, you know, they weren't what I was looking for. I was looking for someone that could relate to me and relate to my experience, what I'd been through, and I found that, um, 
but it took me a, a little while. So like you said, it was my responsibility to keep trying. And you did, thankfully. And I'm like, I'm really grateful you did um, because we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if, if you didn't, if you did, if you gave up. So. Yeah, exactly right. And I, I, I think it's really important to note um, that it wasn't just me. I, I had a really, really positive um, support system around yeah. me because um, I that reached in yeah. and that knew when I was going to give up um, and that didn't let me. And I, I think that's really important to note that even if it's not your family, you know, if you not everybody gets along with their family and that's okay, but everybody will have somebody. And we need to be able to create a space um, and have the conversations and be vulnerable to explain what we need. And on the other, on the receiving end, I had family and, and friends who learned how to ask the right questions and who reached in. So they, it, it's so important that, not only you try and reach out, but that's actually really, really hard to do. It's really, really hard, sometimes impossible to be vulnerable. So for someone who is listening to this, who knows that they've got a friend or a family member or a partner or a work colleague who might be struggling, or even if they're not sure, reach in and ask. I think that's really important to note because if we're, especially at the moment, when we're so separated from each other, it's more important than ever. I cannot stress this enough to reach in to each other. I like those two words. Is that a mindful thing or is that just your thing? No, it's a mindful thing. It's what I learned from that. It is so important to reach in and I never realised how important until people started doing it yeah. to me. Yeah, and it has a huge effect. Until it absolutely does. And not just with the how you're going and accepting good as an yeah. answer. Yeah. I mean, re- like really reaching. So, um, you know, I- I've been teaching people that I know that are um, that have people in their lives that they know are struggling, how to actually ask those questions. It's not just how are you good, okay, how are you really yeah. and actually sit. The most important part, other than asking the question, sit and give them space because for me when someone – reached in especially at the start when I was still trying to figure out what was going on in my head I could not put words to what I was yeah. feeling yeah. in my own head let alone trying to express them out loud and be vulnerable to somebody so asking the right questions is so important but giving space for that person to be able to process and then verbalize what they're feeling is just as if not more important yeah. holding space yeah, you, so re- sorry two so important reach in and hold space and you said it before earlier about listening not to respond listening to what's happening and because the person that you're reaching into doesn't they don't need you to necessarily speak back. Sometimes they just need to air the dirty laundry and then they go, wow, that was amazing. Like I I can now comprehend of how irrational my thoughts and stuff were. All right, yep. I've got this like kind of thing. So it's – and I think a lot of people are so scared to reach in um, because they think they have to fix or do something, whereas they don't. They – and even if they go, I don't know what to say or don't know what to do, that can be like, oh, thank God you've said that because I actually have some ideas to give you and let's work on these together. So mm. I think it's really important that the person reaching in shows their vulnerabilities as well. You don't know, you don't know, you don't have to have the answers. 
Yeah, exactly right. And I think I, I just, as you're saying that, I have this image of someone trudging along with a big stone on their back or this big massive boulder on their back and someone just says, hey, how are you going? And gives them the space to think about the answer and answer them without any response, just creating that safe space, that person just lets that boulder yeah. go and is like, oh, that's all I needed. I just needed that release. And it's something that Matt and Mindful Oz teach, listen with no intent to reply. That is so important. You don't need to respond to what they're saying. You just need to be brave enough to listen to the hard stuff. Yeah. And it's something that I, I don't know who said it and I wish that I did. I'm almost <laughs> embarrassed that I don't know who said it. <laughs> we'll, find, we'll find out. That's um, our task. <laughs> Um, but it's a, it's that quote that's about, I would rather hear how shit you're feeling every day than hear of your funeral. Yeah, I, I've seen that around quite a bit. Um, and I, I just think that that is so important to know that, like you said, you don't have to have all the answers when you ask those questions. You just have to have, as Mindful Oz says, ears willing to listen and a reactive head nod that goes, I've got no idea what this person is saying, but I'm just going to sit here and let them talk yep. and actively listen. That's it. That's all you need. I don't, I don't know who said the quote, but I found it. Man, I'd 100% rather sit with you for as long as it takes and listen to the shit you're going through than sit there for 15 minutes listening to your eulogy. Remember that. Yep. I think it's just it's so yep. – I spoke about this with – I actually reckon I spoke about this with Matt as well. We've been so mm. quick to hide from the fact about suicide and stuff because it's death and it's scary. And But we need to be a little bit pushy with, like not pushy, but we need to accept that it's the reality because mm. when quotes like that come up, it scares people into a like, all right, that could happen, so I'm going to actually make an effort. Because I don't want that to happen. Yeah. It gives the person an option. And it's not mm-hmm. a, it is a life or death, but it's not a life or death if that makes any sense at all. Um, yeah, it does. So, yeah, very, very powerful yeah. quote. I've left that up there now. I might share that um, on Instagram. Yeah, I love that. I, um, I think it's, I just want to touch on what you just said that we need to ask those hard questions. Um, and it's something that, uh, I, I did learn at Mindful Oz and it's something that I've continued on in anyone who's asked me any advice um, about people who are struggling, you know, my son, my cousin, my roommate, whatever, I, I know that they're struggling, I can see that they're struggling or they have vaguely threatened, oh, well, I don't want to be here anymore type yeah. thing, what do I do? And my response is the same every time, ask them, do you want to die? Yeah. Or have you thought about killing yourself? Be direct, call them out because you know what? They can't escape from Yeah, and it's not. You can't beat around the bush with that answer. How are you? Good. Do you want to die? Yes or no? That is as simple as it is. The second question to follow up with that is, do you have a plan in place? If they say yes, then make sure before you have that conversation that you have at least some information in place to go okay if they do answer yes what am I going to do you don't have to fix it but you have to have some sort of support in place so we can go with you know lifeline beyond blue mindful oz um there are so many different um avenues you just have to google it and and we're, we're very fortunate in that we have a lot of resources at our fingertips and that's where that instant um that instant access comes at our benefit is we have we have a lot of answers very quickly um but please feel free to reach out to me and i know shane i'm sure that i can attest to you as well speak on behalf of you to go reach out to shane too but um just please, if you're going to um, ask somebody that, it's so important that you don't try and fix it and that you create space for them, but that you have some sort of connection to make to help that person and to support that person through. 
but imperative that you know don't fix yeah. it. You don't need to. They're not. Yeah, yeah, they're not. And also, they need to have the power to make the decisions themselves. Otherwise, they're not going to do the work. Thank you for joining us on part one of Jamie Munro from Meraki Mind. We're going to cut it off today there just because we don't want to bombard you the two hour episode. We want to split this up into half and half. So, we really want to say thank you for listening to the first half. The second part will be released in three days. And we really hope you can tune in and listen. This is a really important conversation. And as Jamie and myself will mention, we would love you to reach out if there's any questions or you want any help around mental health, mental health awareness. Thanks for listening to Power, Strength and Vulnerability, the mental health podcast. If anything in this podcast has brought up difficult feelings, please call Lifeline on 13-1144. For any further information, or if you want to bring your story to life, contact Shane at shane at vitalityfit.com.au. That's V-I-T-A-L-I-T-Y-F-I-T-T dot com dot A-U.